we're back with season two of the Velvet Ashes Legacy podcast. What we love about season two is we're just mixing it up a little bit. You get to hear living legacies, topics that are important to women, and we're also sticking with our traditional legacy stories. So this month, you are going to get to hear um, Dr. Laura Chevalier-Beer share about Maria Gerber. Yeah, I love this new rhythm that we have for season two, but having this conversation with Laura and getting to just sit and and hear about Maria felt so, it was like being with an old friend sort of um, in that familiar uh, place. So I am excited for you guys to hear about Maria. We We want to highlight women that are diverse, who are not just from the U.S. going out to somewhere else. And so Maria is one of those people. Um, You'll get to hear her story of being born in Switzerland and all of the different places where she ministered. She saw some really tough things um, and, and yet just had such compassion. And oh my goodness, so many times through as Laura was sharing the story, I, I just sat back in awe of what she saw God do in her life. And so I'm so excited for you guys to hear this story. And and honestly, this podcast is one of the amazing things we love to do at Velvet Ashes, but October to December is a really fun and busy time for our ministry in general. We, we, we just launched our app. We're so excited about it. We're going to keep talking about it because it is just such a great way to interact with all of our content and our community. Unplugged Retreat opens this month. In October, if you're listening to this when we release this episode, our Unplugged Retreat content is out. That means you just get to download a retreat guide and get away with the Lord. And we just encourage you to take advantage of that resource. Connection groups happened. We we had connection groups signups fill up within like less than 48 hours, it seemed like. They filled up so quickly. Connection groups are happening. We are going to be speaking and presenting workshops at conferences that are coming up. So We love getting to do this and bring resources to you, our Velvet Ashes community. So sit back, you are in for a treat for this edition of the Velvet Ashes Legacy Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to your Velvet Ashes Legacy Podcast. I'm Denise Beck, joining you as always, and so is Sarah Hilkeman. Hey, Sarah. Hey. And we have with us this month, Dr. Laura Chevalier-Beer, and she is bringing us the story of Maria Gerber. Did I say that right? You did. So um, another person that Sarah and I really didn't know much about, and I would love to hear a little bit about how you chose Maria for this month, and you know, what's your process of, help, of getting ready before we even share anything about this story? Yeah, I'd love to share that. So um, Maria Gerber was actually someone that I researched when I was doing my doctoral studies. Um, She appears in my dissertation as one of the historical figures that I highlight uh, because of her background in working with orphans and vulnerable children around the turn of the 20th century. And so my research um, for my dissertation was um, on, on missionaries who did that very thing. And so she's one of the people that I highlighted. But in addition to that, she's kind of unique because most of the people that I highlighted were North Americans or um, people from, you know, English speaking parts of, of Europe. And she's actually Swiss. 
Um, and I thought I that would it. be a, an interesting um, angle because a lot of the people that we highlight are not from other parts of Europe. They're either from the UK or, the, or North America. Um, and then the location that she went to um, is also more unique than maybe some of the places that we've talked about. She ended up in Turkey. And so that's another reason that we chose her this month. And finally, just the history that she was involved in is really important history that I think a lot of people don't know about. And I hadn't learned much about it either um, before I heard her about her story. And so I think it's really important for us to to learn more about that today. And we'll share more about that as we as we talk. Oh, I'm so looking forward to this. Okay, let's get into hearing about Maria Gerber. Yeah, so at the age of 20, Maria Gerber was diagnosed with a series of incurable illnesses, including rheumatic fever, tuberculosis, and heart issues. And obviously, she was told that she probably didn't have a lot, long time to live. And during that moment, during when she realized, oh, I'm about to die, she realized she wasn't ready mm. for that event. During her childhood, she had had no interest in faith. She wasn't sure she liked what she saw of faith in her mother. When she was 16, her mother had started praying incessantly, and she would often find her weeping over her Bible. So her mother's deeper spiritual life that was blossoming during her teenage years kind of created this battle in her own heart. She was very carefree. She loved to dance and sing and have a good time with her friends. And then in the evenings when she was sleeping, she would have dreams about being before the judgment seat. Now, during this time in history, um, things like playing cards and dancing and being very, you know, kind of out and about with people was kind of frowned upon and not considered to be a part of what the true Christian life should be. So for her, a true conversion meant that she would have to give up all of those things. So she's faced with her imminent death, and she decides to spend three days and nights in prayer, agonizing over what's what's facing her. At some point during that time, she read Matthew 28, 18, which most of you know, if you're missionaries, it's part of the Great Commission. So the part that stood out to her at that time was where it says, to me is given all power in heaven and earth. And she had just kind of this lightning bolt moment where she realized that God had the power to heal her soul and her body. So she decided to consecrate her life and she prayed, quote, Lord, if thou wilt save my soul, forgive all my sins, accept me as thy child and heal this poor body of mine. Here's my life, which shall be all for thee to be used as it pleaseth thee. And then she felt that God said to her, amen, it's done. And she felt this heavy burden lift and immediately she had peace. And day by day, she began to regain her strength and everyone was surprised. I bet. Here she is, this person who was supposed to die and now she's alive again. Yeah. And so much so that her mother had given her clothes away. I guess that was the custom when people thought you were dying, you give the clothes away to the neighbors. So she's, she's healed, she's alive and she has no clothes. So I have to a new wardrobe. (laughs) Yes. So I have to scramble around to find her something. Oh my goodness. So some weeks later, um, Maria actually goes to one of the dance halls where she used to dance and she stands up in the middle of the dance hall and starts giving her salvation testimony and telling everyone how God healed her and um, how she has something better to offer them than just socializing and dancing. 
And then she took the bold move to kneel down and pray. And she closed her eyes. And by the time she ended her prayer, which she says was quite long, the hall was completely empty. So <laughs> kind of killed the party. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, what she found was that it, it brought conviction to many of the listeners and many of them came to faith. Wow. So the, these are just some of the things that happened in her life. And her life was so dramatic, you, as you will see. There's so many points in it where you're like, wow, did that really happen? Wow. That's just the beginning of our story. It feels like, Laura, her salvation experience and even this, like, her bold witness right away, it, it seems like it fits this personality of, like, being full of life. And, like, if she enjoyed the the parties and the dancing, you know, that in some ways God redeemed that, it seems like, and gave her this passion for him, you know, and you see that in her boldness um, and, and going to this dance hall and just sharing. Oh, you're so right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've never thought of it that way. Just using her personality to be the kind of witness mm -hmm. that she was. Yes. So you might be wondering, how did I find out about this woman? Where, where can we find out more about her? Um, I actually read her autobiography. It's called Past Experiences, Present Conditions, and Hope for the Future. So in this a work that she penned in 1917, which was also the year of her death, she recounted her spiritual journey and told about the story of Zion Orphan's Home for Armenian children in Turkey. And like her hero, George Mueller, she reported on the provision for material needs and instances of revival in the orphanage, as well as children carrying out evangelistic work of the mission. So it's, it's really her life story that she shares, but then also a huge focus on the life's work that she had in Turkey. And I'd like to just read you a portion of the preface to give you an idea, an even more idea of what her faith was like and how she expressed herself. So this is a quote that she wrote from the preface. It says, this small book makes no claim to be anything than a humble witness of our dear Lord's dealings with one of his little children, beginning from her early days. And it shall be accompanied with earnest prayers and deep wishes that the anointing power of the Holy Spirit may rest upon it and for the glorification of his name only, and for the advancement of the kingdom of God, and to make known the needs of an, of an oppressed nation. May every reader find in its pages the fragrance of fellowship and sweet rest in our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, and be strengthened in seeking to live for his glory alone, and in deeper love for the lost world and greater faith in God. So her, her preface and her story actually kind of fits a, a model that you see amongst people who kind of took on this living by faith model that George Mueller emulated. Even in his, um, his work, he calls it the Lord's dealings with um, George Mueller. And this book uh, is available through the Flower Pentecostal Heritage Center of the Assemblies of God. And there's also lots of digitized online ar articles from that time period where she wrote letters and you can see those as well. So um, that's where most of the sources for, for this, um, this presentation today came from. And there are some holes in her story. It's, it's not complete. There are some questions that are unanswered and things that aren't addressed because we just don't have the sources that tell us those things. Mm. So to get back to her life, she was actually born with the name Mariana. Um, and then as she was around uh, English speaking people, it kind of got switched to Maria, which was probably more familiar to them. And she was born May 30th, 1858 in Switzerland to a large Mennonite family. She had 11 siblings and she was number seven in that bunch. So a huge family that she is 
born into. And after her dramatic conversion that you already heard about, her faith grew tremendously. She decided right away to start family worship at her home. And she was supported in this by her father and her, or her, by her mother, who was, was a Christian. And her father kind of went along with it, but he was not a, a believer. She also began a Sunday school for the neighborhood children and a young people's meeting and started visiting the sick amongst in the community. Now, during this time, she also faced some opposition because if if you know anything about uh, the Mennonite tradition, um, the way that she was doing things wasn't really in line with how they would do things. So she's praying extemporaneous prayers, she's carrying a Bible around, and she's a woman preacher. So she did face some opposition, mm-hmm. but her passion and her zeal just continued to propel her in what she was doing. Just kind of like what Sarah was talking about, just that overflow of her personality just shows through in everything that she does. Yeah. So then in 1881, she moved to Bern, Switzerland to serve in a deaconess house there. So if you're not familiar with the deaconess movement, it was this movement in the mid 19th and early 20th centuries amongst Protestant denominations in Europe and the United States. And it offered opportunities for women to serve in non-ordained ministry. It's kind of the equivalent of what you'd see in like a Catholic tradition where, um, you know, there's nuns that are serving in the community and they would live together in houses and urban areas. And most were single women who visited the poor, ministered to the sick at home or in hospitals and would offer prayer. So they're providing pastoral care and social services to the community. It was very common amongst Protestant women at that time. So during this time, she she was out serving in, in all of these ways in the community that she was living in, and she became really enamored with her own ministry of visiting the sick. She thought it really depended on her. And at one point, she came very sick with typhus fever, and she decided to still go out and minister. And as she's walking along the street, she runs into a family friend who's a, who's a pastor, and she, she implores him to pray for her, for her healing, so that she can continue the work. work. And he looks at her and he says, go home and go to bed. The Lord can do his work without you. And she resents this, but she goes home and then she finally understands the lesson and she rests and she recovers. I think, you know, this actually um, is one of the themes that we have talked about in our Velvet Ashes community is that either, so it's it's like this conflict of this idea of it's not, honoring to God to put myself first. And that even means taking care of myself before the needs of the people that I'm here to serve. You know, sometimes we can look at it like that, but it could also be, you know, almost idolizing the work ethic over taking care of yourself. And so there's so many different intricacies that we deal with as global workers that sometimes can cause us to not take care of ourselves well. And I think it's a really great point to just pull that out you know, that, hey, we are honoring God when we take a step back and care for ourselves. I don't know. Have you guys experienced that in your dealings with people or even in your own hearts? Oh, I think it's a common, a common thread amongst people who minister yeah. cross-culturally, amongst pastors. It's just giving, giving, giving and, and thinking it all depends on you, really, when, even when it doesn't. Yeah, I think that really stuck out to me, Laura, in this part of Maria's story. And the word enamored just really stuck out to me of she was enamored, you know, with her work in ministry. Mm -hmm. And even when we are doing something really good and really important, 
just how we can kind of cross over that line to being self-focused in the, you know, I am, I'm making this happen. I am, um, look at, look at how amazing I am, or, you know, look at the results or whatever. And, uh, sometimes even in that, like, then we can, we don't, you know, we're serving and we're sacrificing, but we're also focusing on ourselves and we can miss then really being able to see people or, you know, like, um, with Maria, she was sick and, you know, needed somebody to tell her to go home. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I love the bloodness of her friend who's like, go home and go yeah. to bed. That's what you need. Like right. yeah, God can heal you, but take care of yourself. We all right. need friends yeah. like that, don't we? Yes. Well, and just because sometimes you have to take care of yourself, but sometimes there are things out of your control that actually do cause you to leave the work. And you have to believe that right. the work is God's and he's going to be able to continue it whether you're there or not. Yes. Yes. So her, her work actually gets interrupted. She finds out that her father is is dying and she returns home to help care for him. And she stays there for a number of years. And um, gladly, she reports that before his death, he does accept Christ and um, has has an understanding of who Christ is in his life. Then in 1889, she moved to Basel, Switzerland, to enroll in a nurse's training course in a maternity hospital. Her goal in this was to prepare for more useful service for the Lord. So she's already ministering to the sick. Let's get more equipped to, to be able to do that well. So during that time, she also became an independent city missionary, meaning she trusted the Lord for support. She wasn't receiving support from anyone. Yeah, so I'm not sure the order of these events, but at some point um, close to her home, there was a dramatic um, revival that happened. And there was healings, there was lots of praise and evangelistic fervor. In one instance, she even told about praying for a dead woman and having this woman raised from the dead. Um, So again, a very dramatic uh, experience. She also told about um, some provision that happened during... uh, one of the meetings that she had organized. So she and some friends um, were organizing meetings with the friends, or as we know them in the United States as Quakers. They were meant to provide a meal and it fell to Maria and sister Anna, her uh, colleague to provide this meal. And all Maria had was two francs to her name. So she gave her purse with these francs in it to sister Anna and told her to purchase what was needed for the meal. Anna did that and then returned day after day for a week during these meetings. She would take the purse and return with food. Maria never opened the purse during the week. Finally, she started questioning Anna about who was giving her money and if she had paid for the food, if the purse had been out of her possession. And Anna was startled by this questioning. She had had money each day, paid for the food, no one had given her money, and the purse had not been out of her sight. And at the end of the week, there were over two francs in it. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. After hearing what had taken place, they realized this must be the supernatural work and provision mm-hmm. of the Lord. Wow. And it was around this time that she, be, uh, that Maria started investigating um, this life of faith, what um, George Mueller had typified in his work. And she also read works by Andrew Murray. She even took it upon herself to travel to uh, the UK to visit Mueller's orphanages and to learn from what they were doing. And at one point she recalls being encouraged because she felt like God revealed to her that Mueller's work was not because of him as the man, 
or him as a human being, but because of God. And she felt that she could pray to be used similarly. And what you see in her story is that indeed she is very similar to George, George Mueller in in the work that she does and in trusting the Lord for, for provision and experiencing all kinds of miracles, really, in a way that maybe us today in, in our lives, maybe we don't see quite as much. Hmm. And I feel like that's why we need these stories of, you know, whether whether it is um, someone from history, like learning about Maria, or whether it's people who are alive today that we are learning from, just the importance of being encouraged by these stories and seeing God at work and just that reminder of how good and how powerful he is. And that's why we share them, because think about how many times have we heard the name George Mueller as somebody that has impacted these stories that we're hearing about today, you know, and it's like, if we aren't sharing what the Lord's doing in our life, it can't be the thing that impacts somebody else and gives them the courage to do things like Maria. So I totally agree with you. So then another big change happens in 1891. Maria departed for the United States. She'd been invited to go to the United States by a wealthy businessman who had become a pastor. He was from Indiana, and he had um, had faced a serious illness in his life. And during that time, he had kind of made a, a dedication of his life to the Lord, saying, if you'll heal me, I will um, do this for you. And he promised to build orphan houses and other institutions. And he ended up doing that. And he invited Maria to come and work with him. So she arrived in New York, um, and she was asked to be the matron of one of these institutions, Um, but she didn't know English yet. So she enrolled at A.B. Simpson's Missionary Training Institute. Some of you might know this as Nyack College or Alliance University. Uh, And she she did that so she could learn English. But then just a few days later, she tells this dramatic story of being called to minister to someone. Um, Someone knocks on her door and says, come, can you do this? And she's like, no, I can't speak. I don't know how to communicate and they keep asking and she finally decides to go. And during that time of ministry, she reads the Bible in English. She prays in English. She's understanding what they're saying. And she believes that the Lord has given her this gift of the English language. And she says she wasn't perfect after that. She learned quite a bit, but it became much easier after that. Um, empowering moment where she was ministering out of her depth. I'm sure so many people wish that would happen. (laughs) We're thinking the same thing, right? Yeah. If whole language learning (laughs) could be like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think she had an aptitude for language as well, because you see her later um, able to speak in, uh, in the various languages where she's ministering to as well. But she, she definitely attributed this to the Lord's work in her life because she had just arrived. So sometime later, she also enrolled at Moody Bible School, now Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and she studied there for about two years. And if you know any of the history of um, Moody Bible, it was started by Dwight Moody, who was an innovative, fiery evangelist who was instrumental in his promotion of missions during the late 19th and early 20th century. And Moody Bible School was one of many similar institutions like NIAC that were set up to train young people to be missionaries. So she she had the opportunity to be around some pretty influential American evangelicals at that time, or North American. So during her study, she also was engaged in uh, rescue work and evangelistic outreach with Mr. Moody's missions. 
And she had the opportunity, she, apparently she had a very gifted, she was very gifted with a, a singing voice and she had the opportunity at the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893 to perform as a soloist during Dwight Moody's, you know, evangelistic um, meetings. Wow, that's quite an amazing experience to hear about. You know, but I just want to go back a little bit to the man that, you know, invited her to, to into cross-cultural work had... His his conversion experience seems really similar to hers, you know, just the idea of being sick and, you know, Lord, are you real? And if so, I give you my life. And so I just, it reminds me of just, you know, those of us who have been called to cross-cultural work and the joy of aligning with somebody who has your same passion, who gets it, who's been there. And, and they sometimes invite you to take the biggest steps of your life. And I see that here, you know, somebody that obviously she shared passion and excitement for the Lord because of something they'd been through. And, and that caused her biggest step so far in the story to serve cross-culturally. And so I don't know. I just found that that was very interesting that they had very similar experiences there. Yeah. I think that's a great point, uh, Denise, that you, that you saw that parallel there. And I know at that time in history, um, the, like people, there was a great focus on divine healing. And so to find other like-minded mm-hmm. people was very much in in line with what, what was happening in that time period. Um, and yeah, there's, there's still more kind of amazing things in her, her future too, as we'll see. Um, during her time ministering in the United States around 1897, she first began to hear about the persecution and massacres of Armenians who were mostly Christians in the Ottoman empire, which is modern day Turkey. She began to speak on their behalf and collect funds. She was especially moved by the plight of orphans and widows. So just a cultural note here, um, the Armenian nation um, historically was an ancient people, and they're considered the first nation to adopt Christianity as its state religion in 301 um, AD. And they were an Indo-European people, and their historical homeland was in the mountainous region of West Asia and present-day Turkey, Armenia, Iran, and the former Soviet Union. From the 16th and 19th centuries, it was ruled by the Ottoman and Persian empires. And by the 19th century, the Western part was ruled by the Ottoman empire and the Eastern part was ruled by the Russian empire. So this is a people that has been through a lot of different um, regimes ruling them. And, but they have a history of having Christianity, a cultural Christianity as part of their, their culture. Beginning in the 1890s, there was a series of massacres of Iranian communities by the Ottoman Empire. Then between 1915 and 1918, during World War I, the Ottoman Empire began the systematic destruction of the Armenian people and identity, what is now referred to as the Armenian Genocide. The Ottoman Empire had suffered losses, and so they feared an uprising from the Armenians, and so they carried out, carried out these massacres. That's so a very simplified explanation, but that's, that's probably what we need right now for this presentation. There's an estimated 800,000 to 1.5 million people killed through mass murder and death marches. Many women and children suffered forced Islamization, rape, and other brutality and starvation. So it's a pretty um, heavy history here that she was a part of. The Armenian genocide is actually the second most researched case of genocide after the Jewish Holocaust, and it was a precursor to that event. And some of what happened actually served kind of as a model for what would happen um, during the Jewish Holocaust with the death marches and um, death camps and things. 
At the time, the plight and suffering of the, of the Armenians was reported around the world and Christian people rallied to their support, sending money, offering prayers and encouragement. And there was an expulsion of other groups from the Ottoman Empire as well, including Greeks and Assyrians. And this led to the creation of an ethno-nationalistic Turkish state, which is present the present-day Republic of Turkey. And Turkey still maintains that this, uh, these events were not genocide. So that's just a very brief history of, of kind of what she was involved in, in terms of um, wanting to raise awareness and support for the Armenian people. Yeah, it was so helpful to learn this, Laura. I feel, I don't know, bad, I guess, because I, I really didn't know a lot of this. Um, so it's just helpful to know what was going on. Well, and I just like, can we recap for a second? So she's Swiss, right? She's in America and she's feeling very prompted and impacted by something that's happening to an Armenian people group. So this is like all sorts of cultures. You know, she is definitely not just in her box of what is right in front of her. Her heart is open and moved to what the Lord is doing all over the world. Her, her global worldview is off the charts, you know, um, I just, I think that's so powerful. Yeah. She was just definitely aware of what was going on in the world. And maybe that's because she was someone who was outside of her home country, living in another country. It was easier to have this worldview of, of being aware and being concerned about what was happening in other parts of the world. I think she also, um, was really struck by the fact that the area where these pe- people lived was, part of the biblical story, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for instance, here, we're going to hear, she she ends up um, going through Tarsus, where mm. the Apostle Paul is from. Yeah. So her original U.S. ministry partners backed her to go to Turkey with um, a pupil and friend, uh, Miss Ruth Lambert. So she and Ruth set out and arrived in Turkey in 1898, they landed in Marcina, journeyed through Tarsus, and traveled to the remote mountain city of Hadjin, where they immediately took in 60 orphans. Can we just stop there for just a second? <laughs> I mean, that this wasn't stepping off of a plane, right? This is 1898. So mm. they did all of this, and then the sentence, and they immediately took in 60 orphans. <laughs> I mean... That's huge. Yeah, but that's was their intention going there. They knew that there were orphans. So many, many of the men had had been taken or had died. Uh, many of the women were left widowed and people are starving and kids don't have parents looking out for them. So they knew there was a need to take care of orphans. And so that's what they went there to do. By the end of the second year, they were caring for 200 in the home and were ministering to 100 more, plus widows whose husbands and fathers had been killed. Mm. So their desire was to bring up these orphan children in the fear of the Lord so that they would evangelize the country, but to also just help them. So save their lives. During this time, they also took trips to the surrounding villages. And during these travels, they encountered great reverence and respect for the Trinitarian God in the Bible. So as we said before, the Armenian people had this rich history of, of Christianity in their culture. They were familiar with with aspects of, of the Bible. They they believed in a good God, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they were eager for more knowledge of the Bible. Um, but they were facing destitute poverty, illiteracy, and they they just didn't have Bibles, and they didn't they lacked a lot of knowledge about the Bible. So 
as they're traveling around, they're sharing the biblical message, they're sharing Bibles and literature, they, t they can needy children wherever they go, the neediest that they can find. And they're traveling up and down all over this rough terrain. And she, Maria remarks that she counted it joy to have these hardships and travel. And she's reminded of Apostle Paul's hardships and joy. Mm -hmm. And she says, you can't really read the New Testament without having walked in these places where it's so hard to get through and to, to, to travel. As I mentioned before, it's a mountainous region. So the, she says that there were over 2,000 widows in this one uh, town alone living in starvation. So she decides to put them to work. Um, to make wool, spinning, you know, spinning, spinning the wool so they could make stockings for children. And they did the same thing with cotton to make clothing. And the, the widows would also do the washing and the cooking for the orphans. And um, she'd give them a Bible lesson at the beginning and the end of the day. And so this was a way that she not only looked out for the children, but also tried to help the, the widows who were suffering there as well. And she mentions that at that time, they, she and Sister Ruth saw a need for a revival in Hajin. And so they began to set aside a special time for prayer every day. They began to invite their neighbors to the orphanage for Bible study and the gatherings grew and they grew. Eventually had, they had to meet in a large church given to them by the Armenian people. They would meet nightly and Maria would um, teach while uh, an Armenian woman would interpret. And sh she says that thousands came to these meetings. I mean, just picturing this, she's mm -hmm. this Swiss woman coming to Turkey via America. And here she is preaching to thousands of people and they would stay off until midnight. And she would dismiss and ask those who desired salvation to remain and whole crowds would remain saying, quote, we all want to get this. So she's trying to like clear the room. So there's space to kind of, you know, help help people come people to faith and everyone's it, yeah. just staying. Wow. And she says that hundreds received the witness of the Holy Ghost that they were children of God. Sadly, she reports that later during World War I, during the genocide, that um, after she had moved on, this city was destroyed. Uh, 30,000 people. The men were mostly killed in cruel ways and the women and children deported and many died on the roadside, she says. Mm -hmm. And she reported that she was very grateful that she had the opportunity to tell them about Christ the Redeemer and that so many accepted him and that they could be counted as martyrs. Mm -hmm. And then she told many children's uh, stories of children coming to faith and those children um, ministering to other children in the home. You know, I wonder how many people that are listening to this have experienced, you know, times when they've had to leave and you've wondered... Mm -hmm. Lord, what's it all? What's it all for? Did I make a difference, or, you know, what what will happen to them? And just, you know, hearing that, you know, we don't know how long our season will be anywhere, you know, but just that the impact that can have for eternity is is just so powerful. And that's what I I don't know. That's what I think about. You know, what it what a amazing season to for her to have experienced all of that. And honestly. The thousands of people, I, I just am, she was a woman in the early, you know, late 1800s. I, I don't know exactly what year we're at right now, but the fact that she is standing up and teaching what I can only assume would have included men, you know, that's, that's pretty powerful in itself just for that time period. Yeah, but it seems like she was available for however mm -hmm. the Lord wanted to use her and, you know, even like 
seeing how she was able to minister in this time. And then, you know, we are able to look back and see what happened later. Um, But when we're in the present moment, just, I don't know, feeling the urgency of Mm -hmm. sharing the gospel with people, sharing the hope that we have with people, because we don't know. We don't know how long we'll be in a place. We don't know how long those people have or, or what is next, but just, yeah, being available and, and sharing Jesus, sharing the hope that we have with people while we can. I can't help but think back to uh, Laura, what you mentioned at the beginning, her first attempt at doing this, where she kneels down and prays and everybody exits and she looks up to an empty auditorium. And now she can't get people to leave. It's overflowing. Mm, and just that yeah. contrast of what the Lord did there, almost, you know, just like your faithfulness was rewarded and it's worth it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So true. Such a, such a contrasting picture. And I also think it's important to just highlight how receptive the the Arminian people were and just yeah. thank God that they were for what Absolutely. they faced in the future, you know? Like I just yeah. I get tear teary eyed thinking about like they're sitting there saying, We want this and then yeah. just a few years a few years later, many of them are, are dead. Yeah. That their hearts were, were ready and open mm-hmm. at the right time. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So as I mentioned, she had, she did eventually move on from that location in 1902 and 03. She was, uh, she had left Turkey due to ill health. Uh, The workload and the pace was taking its toll. As we said, she was staying up all night and working all day. Um, And you just can't keep that up. So sister Ruth stayed behind with some other missionaries um, and she returned um, to be rested. Um, I'm not sure if she went back to Europe or U.S. at this time. I, I, I have to look at my notes again. But um, some of her friends in the United States at this time organized a missionary board for this orphan home. And the administration of it was transferred to the Mennonite Church. Um, and through that, through those decisions that were made, um, Maria ends up deciding not to continue with that. And she resigned. She doesn't necessarily like all the decisions that are being made. And she realizes that it's time to move on. But this does not stop her from continuing work in Turkey. She returned to Turkey in um, October of 1903 to the region of Cappadocia uh, or central Turkey. And she began evangelistic meetings in Iconium, now Konya. Um, So if you're familiar with some of um, Paul's travels, that was one of the cities where he went. Um, At the time that Maria was there, it was a city of about 60,000, and it was made up of um, Turks, Armenians, and Greeks. So she tries to get papers to open orphan home while she's there, Um, but the local government is not um, in agreement with that. They're very resistant to that. Um, But eventually the door opens for her to open a home in, I'm not sure how you say this, Zinjadere, not from Caesarea. And this is, uh, Caesarea has about 80,000 inhabitants. So she moves over to this new location. So she begins by renting buildings um, and friends in Europe supported the work. Then it becomes clear as she's, they're working more and more that they just need more space. Um, And she receives two francs in the mail and takes it as a sign that she needs to start looking for her land and start building those two francs again. Those two francs. Mm -hmm. And eventually she is offered a piece of land. 
1904, she, she decides to start going to that land to pray. It's about an hour and a half walk from the city of Caesarea. So really not that far if you think about it. How long does it take you to walk? How, how far can you get in an hour and a half? She had been told by the locals that she would have to haul in stone to be able to have a foundation and build the buildings there. Um, so she knew it was probably going to be a big deal, but she, she knows she doesn't have the money or the manpower to do that. So she starts praying. And as she's praying, she notices that there's two types of stone on the ground. And um, so she decides that maybe they should dig and see if there's stone that might be useful. So she pays the two francs to uh, a man who's nearby who needs the money. And he digs and he, he unearths a granite stone uh, about five feet down. She gets more money from Europe, and so she decides to pay a bunch of men to dig up some stone, and they dig out an entire foundation, and the locals are amazed because they've had to all bring in their stones to do their buildings. I love that so much. You know, just the fact that the Lord actually, it's actually on a foundation provided by the Lord. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. I love that. So she feels completely out of her depth in building buildings, but she prays and asks God for help. And she draws plans at night, changing them based on different things that she learns and what she feels like God is telling her. And she feels like God is challenging her to be build much bigger than she originally makes her plans for. And they do. And she gives all the glory to the, for these buildings to God and the few faithful local believers who helped her gather the supplies on the land. It took, uh, at least two years to complete four buildings. And within these buildings were dormitories, a meeting hall, a dining room, school rooms, room for workers, storage, a kitchen, wash wash and bathroom, stables, everything you need to take care of a bunch of children and all the people that are caring for them. Um, and by the end of the build, they decide to have a special service to dedicate this building, which they're calling Zion Orphan Homes. Zion Orphan's Home to the Lord. And so they um, continue having an annual celebration to praise the Lord for all that he's done. And they they ha- they hold other celebrations in the large whole hall. And this hall can actually um, hold at least a thousand people. And they she, she reports that many, many times they fill it to capacity for celebrations like Christmas, Easter, baptisms, weddings and funerals, the Lord's Supper. And she works... Um, doing doing the work in this large meeting hall, not just by herself, but there's an Ar- ordained Armenian pastor who serves with her. Um, so they are able to have the Lord's Supper and communion and things like that. Um, and the house um, with the children follows a really regular routine. You'd have to if you have that many children that you're trying to raise. Um, they have times for prayer and Bible study, meals, school, and play. And then Sundays have their own routine with Bible study and preaching and lessons and pretty much go through the whole day and evening. Uh, but that was pretty typical at this time. In 1911, uh, Maria wrote, the number of our orphaned Armenian children at present is 196 with eight teachers, three native evangelists, and we have four foreigners and from 15 to 25 widows who do the washing, cooking, and sewing for our orphans. We also have six men for teaching trades, for housework, and for night watching. So at this um, orphanage, the children are being schooled, they're being uh, fed, and they're also learning trades that uh, they can then use once they graduate to maybe make a living, but it also provides for some of the things that they need at the school. One of the interesting parts of uh, Maria's story are this 
the stories that she tells about the children and the faith that she sees developing in them. And it's, it's pretty incredible, some of the stories that she mentioned. So remember, these are orphan children who have probably suffered lots of hardship beyond just losing their parents. They've probably suffered from some starvation and just being out in, on the street. And um, she tells the story of there being a fire in the town and there's people who's who have lost everything. And she tells the children about this, that she's seen some of these victims who have lost everything. And they the children decide that they want to give, give up their meal that they're eating. And, and she, she gives them the opportunity to do that. And it's not just putting it back in the pot and someone else going down, but she actually gives the children the opportunity to take their, their own bowl and go find someone to give it to. And so they go down the hill and they, they give it to um, the sufferers from the fire. And they, then she reports that they, they come back joyfully um, sharing the stories of being able to share their meal with someone who needed it. I have goosebumps right now. I mean, that's so powerful. Just her wisdom to, to know they had to see to experience the joy of giving and not just hear about it, yeah. but they did it themselves. Oh, I yeah. Love and uh, she also reports that they did something similar again, where they had a special food, which was raisins. And they, they asked to be able to, to sell it, to be able to buy bread for, for these victims and doing something similar. Mm. And they also, um, she would encourage them to save their pennies and they'd put it in a missionary box and they would give it to famine orphans in India. And so this is part of like Maria's mentality of you have to, not just teach children about the Bible and about faith, you have to help them live it. Mm-hmm. Not even just be an example to them, but ha- let them let them be an example to themselves. Like let them learn it and let them do do things that are taught in the Bible. Yeah. Um, and and she sees she's sees their faith growing. Um, and in one instance, she shares the story of being so ill that she's not able to go. Um, and be with them for their morning prayers and activities. And so the children are told that she's ill, that they need to stay away, let her rest. But they're so concerned about her. Instead, a bunch of them sneak into her room and she starts hearing them praying over her. And they pray prayers like, oh God, we've lost our mothers. This is the only mother we have left. Please, please save her. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, that would make you feel better. And she recovers. She recovers. Yeah, she recovers. I mean, so the first time she's pleading with God, heal me. And this next time, these orphans are pleading with God to heal her. Mm-hmm. I just, oh, the powerful, powerful story. Yeah. And you can see like the kind of faith that she's living is the kind of faith that she's trying to pass on to these children. Let's take God as, as his word. Let's trust him for provision. Let's be generous. Let's pray for a, our, like, pray for each other when we're sick. Um, and let's share the good news with others. And maybe this isn't the time to talk about this, but I just, in my head, we, in a culture of Christianity, when there's so many people that are in leadership that are not real and they're harming those who they are in authority over. And to see this story where these children unprompted by anybody else just are overwhelmed by the goodness they receive from someone in authority over them that they go and pray for her. And it's just such a great example of, of that done well. And I, I just appreciate that so much. Yeah. And she, she was humble too. Like, yes, she, 
she would talk about these things that she was a part of, but she also shares how she's was taught by the children and was taught by the local workers. She shares one story of one of the orphan boys who grew up in the orphanage. He becomes a teacher at the school and eventually the director. And she shares how he really took it upon himself to be a real father to these fatherless children. And one of the things he would do would be to take time each night to go in and pray over the children. He'd kneel at their, uh, at, by their beds and pray over them. And she said, especially the most difficult ones. And she says, he was a valuable coworker. I learned a lot from him. Mm. But sadly, she shares that he was at the start of the war. He and other godly men that she worked with were rounded up. And um, she didn't know at the time of her writing what had happened to him, but we, we know what that history is now. Yeah. I love this theme of prayer and how, like you've said in all of this, how she invited, how she modeled it and then invited, you know, invited the children in, invited those she was working with into praying and that kind of like you, what you were saying, Denise, of how sometimes we see authority abused, um, but she was in this position of authority and yet, um, was, was modeling and inviting people in. And like you were saying, Laura, learning from them and just the beauty of that, the, the beauty of seeing God working in this time when it could be very discouraging, you know, there's all this death and destruction and all these horrible things. And I'm sure, there were times when she was discouraged or, you know, just when that was really heavy, but also seeing the little joys and the, the miracles and celebrating those two in the midst of all of it is just really powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, and also she's so capable. Like, I don't know, Laura, when you're telling the story and you, you talk about how, how she organized things, how she set these people up, the widows need a job. Let me give them a job. You know, she, it's obvious that she's gifted organizationally and that she has the gift to see things and make that work, but she didn't lean on her own giftedness. It It's so evident that, yes, yeah, she was gifted, but she relied on prayer. And, um, you know, and I think that that's such a, a great thing to point out is that, you know, you might be gifted and you could maybe bluff your way through this, but the best thing that you can do is acknowledge that you're weak and you need to depend on the Lord. Yeah. And that's that lesson that she had learned back when she was serving right. as a deaconess. Like, oh yeah, it's not just me. <laughs> it's not just me. <laughs> yeah. So when World War I began in 1914, she had 215 children with personal supporters from Europe. They supported seven to 800 meals a day that they were serving and the clothing for the 200 children um, and the evangelistic work and the trade work that they did at the orphanage. With the start of the war, what happened was the support coming out of Europe changed. So uh, it really dried up. So reluctantly, in 1915, Maria departed for the U.S. to search for funding for the work. So the local workers took charge of the home, and they would write letters back and forth to her about what was going on. So for about two years, the home seemed to remain relatively untouched by the turmoil that was going on in Europe. And um, it grew, though, to include over 500 children at that time. However, uh, the Turkish military took over the missionary buildings later in the war, and the children had to be placed in homes in the town, so like kind of with host families. Um, And Maria continued to raise funds and try to support those who were caring for the orphans in their homes. 
Um, and it's unclear whether she actually returned to Turkey. Um, I, 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 some accounts say that seem to indicate that she did, some indicate that she didn't, but she was in the United States for over two years at least. And in 1916 and 17, she suffered a series of strokes and then finally died December 6th um, of 1917. So the end of her story is kind of a little bit vague because she, she didn't get to write it. So we don't, we don't know as much. Um, but she ended up leaving in her will all of the monies that she had in the la land that was in her name, the deed for the land for Zion's orphan home. She left it to the orphanage. The work among the orphans and widows continued, but the home as it had been never really reopened because those buildings had been taken. So just in summary, um, her legacy kind of is twofold in my mind. Um, she had a strong evangelistic reach in Switzerland, the United States, and Turkey. Um, she was a gifted preacher and really took advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel, pray for healing, and testify to God's goodness and provision, despite facing many hardships. She had committed her life to that, and she really, she did that. Um, it's very clear. And then secondly, just her work um, in um, compassionate ministry amongst the Armenians, um, an obituary that appeared in the periodical, the weekly evangelist said that she was known as, quote, the angel of mercy to the downtrodden Armenians. So she felt this great compassion for the Armenian people, so much so that she moved her life to be near them to offer what material help she could to thousands. And she helped um, to share their plight and mobilize worldwide action on behalf of the Armenian people. During her time in Turkey, she raised many orphans to faith who viewed her as a mother and became um, Christian leaders in their community. And she's still remembered among uh, the evangelical community of Armenians for her work during the most horrific time in their history as a people. Wow. I'm just, I'm just sitting here in my mind replaying kind of this person that an hour ago I didn't know anything about. And... And the fact that there are so many of these stories that potentially exist and impacted so many people and have the ability to change our lives that that we just don't know about this side of heaven, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm I'm so grateful that I got to meet Maria and was inspired mm -hmm. by the story. I'm never gonna forget the bowls. I'm never gonna forget that story of the bowls and the two francs, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, Laura, thank you for introducing this story to a whole new community of people, because this was not somebody I'd ever heard of before. I'm just grateful for the opportunity to share about her and her tremendous work. And um, especially, yeah, as I said before, just given her background is kind of different than some of the people that we've highlighted in the past. Yeah, I think the thing that I keep thinking about is how she, she went towards suffering in a lot of ways when I know at least I personally would rather want to run away from suffering, you know, like, um, I think her compassion and combined with her passion, I guess, um, you know, those two things of, of meeting people where they were and seeing this need and, using her gifts and her personality for God's kingdom, I think is just, yeah, so powerful. Well, and, you know, even when she wasn't in country, even when 
she had to be back in America. She's still working toward doing something for the people that God placed in her life and on her heart. And it, it just never, it never went away from her. And I, and, you know, so many of us feel that way, you know, we feel the burden of the call the Lord has put on us and it's not a, okay, I'm not there anymore. So I'm not going to think about them. It's, it's deep and it's constant. And, um, and what a great example of someone who just lived that out to the very end. Yeah. And I think her story also reminds us just of the fact that there are so many people who are suffering and persecuted today in this, this Mm -hmm. day and age. Um, We just heard a sermon at our church recently about how many Christian believers there are around the world who are suffering for the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, and you don't hear about that necessarily. It's e- How about this? It's easy to not be aware of that if you choose to. There's so many other things you can listen to or be distracted by that you don't have to know about that if you don't want to, you know? And so right. it's it's a good reminder to be opened up and be, be inspired by her global worldview to, to to be aware of what's happening somewhere else and don't write it off as it's not your problem or your responsibility, or you can't do anything to impact that. That's not where you're from, you know, because she did, she changed people's lives in a country that wasn't her own for eternity. I'm grateful for this time. We got to sit together today. I'm inspired by Maria and I just, I'm praying that others that heard this will be inspired and that maybe that they will have courage that was also going to inspire someone else to leave a legacy. Thanks guys for this month. Look forward to joining you next month where we will hear another living legacy story on the Velvet Ashes Legacy Podcast.